Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Alex Zakaris is professor of political science at University of Vermont and author of Individuality and Mass Democracy, Mill, Emerson, and the Burdens of Citizenship. His new book is The Roots of American Individualism, Political Myth in the Age of Jackson, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Zakaris. Thanks very much for having me. All right, we'll jump right in. You begin with foundational myths. Uh, how do you use the word myth here? Yeah, so um, we often use the myth, uh, the, the term myth, right, to, to mean that something is false, as in like, yeah, this is an urban legend, a myth, a common misconception. What I try to do in the book is use the, the term in a, in a different sense. So, for example, when we talk about Greek myths, we're talking about something more than just falsehoods. Uh, in, in this sense, a myth is, is a widely accepted story that helps us make sense of political uh, events and experiences unfolding around us. And that gives us a kind of key to unlocking their meaning. Um, so, yeah, in the book, I focus on a certain kind of myth, which I call foundational myth. Um, and a foundational myth is, is a, a story that paints a kind of glorified picture of the nation and its people. So it tells us a story of national origins that explains who its people are and who they're meant to be. It often does this by contrasting them to some threatening other, some antagonist or rival or source of pollution or decay. And these myths can be, I, I mean, they're, they're almost always idealized, so they include elements of falsehood, but they, they need not be entirely false. Uh, they can also draw in elements of truth. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of myth-making took place in the early Republic, you say. Is this, or was this a necessity, really, for a new nation that seemed to, you know, in, in, in some sense, come, seem so new? Yeah, I, I think so. So, and, and that gets to, to one other thing I would add about myth, and that is, you know, the, what, what's the point? What, what's the purpose that these stories serve? One of the key purposes that they've served is to create a sense of shared identity and purpose. So to create a kind of national us. And mm -hmm. this was a project that was very much on the minds of national leaders uh, in the United States from the founding through the Civil War. Right, how to create a sense of shared national identity that would hold the country together. I mean, initially at the founding, you know, the, 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 our leaders are very aware that the American people were quite diverse, right? Religiously, ethnically, regionally. They identified not as Americans, but as Virginians or New Yorkers, right? Um, I, and then in the decades that followed, sorry, go ahead. Well, I've actually said before that uh, uh, you know, the United States 1790 was the most diverse nation on earth. Am I accurate in saying that? Oh boy, I'd have to know more <laughs> about, uh, 
uh, I mean, at the at that time, um, yeah, it's an yeah, yeah. Question. I know that. I I'm mean, fully... all the all these religions, all these all these languages being uh, being spoken, people coming from from different different parts, including including Afri- slaves from Africa, uh, uh, natives, uh, t- tribes who are still li- lingering in populated areas, and then people from different parts of you. Anyway, I I just sort of. T- toss that out as as uh, no absolutely as, but, as an but idea. And, you know the, and the one other thing I would I would add is that as as we get into the 19th century you know it becomes obvious and this is obvious right it, be- it becomes clear that there are these growing uh, uh, sectional differences between north and south and so the you have these two parties in the second party system both of whom are trying to hold together national constituencies to to win votes in both the north and the south and and so both mm. have an interest in sort of telling a story about what it means to be an american and telling a story that's uh, that's inclusive of white uh, uh, of, of white people at the time in any case um, and uh, as a way of sort of imagining a cohesive national identity. Yeah, and and in individualism is is going to be your 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 core your core theme. You begin first by dividing individualism into inclusive and exclusive individualism. What what what's the difference there? Yeah. So um, when we think about these myths that began to circulate very widely in the Jacksonian era. Um, they were, um, the, the most powerful of them were centered on a vision of individual freedom. So the United States is presented over and over again in the political rhetoric of the time. And we're talking about political orations, campaign literature, magazine and newspaper editorials, sermons as the land of the free, and in particular as a place where individuals could, could enjoy an expansive personal liberty. Um, and the, the, this is, the, these stories are, are told partly as a way of, of uh, well, as I said, of constructing a kind of American national identity and, and telling a story of American uniqueness or exceptionalism, right? And so you see constant contrast being drawn, especially to Western Europe. So the various visions of freedom celebrated in, and, and the book is really structured around these three core myths, uh, the, the, each of which is centered on a different ideal of personal freedom. The, 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 there's a continual contrast being drawn between the United States and Europe. And so when you think about, so you've asked about um, inclusive versus exclusive, a lot depended on how these contrasts were framed. So, so the inclusive contrast goes something like this. Look, in the United States, um, everyone, and, and by everyone is, is meant usually Europeans, right? No matter what they're, no matter how poor they are, how low-born they are, whatever their circumstances are, they can come here and experience a kind of dramatic rebirth, right? They, they have natural rights. They have expansive opportunities. Uh, they have, uh, uh, they, they can fashion their own identities and make their own way in the world. Uh, and so this is, this is a kind of, you know, and this discourse of America as the sort of refuge for the oppressed of the world, which was very powerful in the political rhetoric of the time, was, was an essentially inclusive rhetoric, right? Uh, um, on the other hand, um, as I emphasize throughout the book, the, uh, you know, this was a time of rising white supremacy, maybe the sort of high tide of white supremacy in American history, um, the idea of individual freedom was was associated uh, ever more closely with uh, whiteness and with white men in particular. You know, this was a time when when 
black citizens in northern states were actually being stripped of the right to vote, which in some areas they had enjoyed uh, in the early decades of the republic. Um, and so, and so, right. So, so there's an alternative and kind of exclusive narrative around individual freedom that is, that associates it ever more with Anglo-Saxonness and whiteness, um, and it, and uses that as a kind of justification for racial subordination. A, a couple of prominent figures. Uh, you, you sort of you sort of lay out lay out the myths by by creating this model example. Uh, who is who is the quote individual proprietor figure? Yeah, great. So there are these. So I, I really focus on three different myths in the book: the myth of the independent proprietor, the myth of the rights bearer, and the myth of the self-made man. So you've asked about the the independent proprietor, and this is, I think, a, a story that's that's familiar to to your listeners. Probably we associate it with the sort of Jeffersonian mythology: the idea that. Uh, uh, what's distinctive and special about America during this period is the wide availability of land um, and the uh, uh, and the fact that so many American uh, citizens are property owning farmers in particular, or to some extent, uh, property owning artisans uh, who, who own their own shops uh, uh, and control their own fates. But the, the, the emphasis here rests really on economic self-ownership. So in America, people own their own land, they own uh, their own business, um, they uh, are their own boss, right? Uh, they, they have, they're not working for anybody else. They're not, certainly not working at the beck of some, uh, some master or, or factory boss, yeah. right? They, uh, Alex, let me, let me ask, would, would, the, would the small slave owner fit into that category? Or would there be some a little bit of a little bit of discomfort with 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 the individual proprietor owning slaves or no? No, I mean, overwhelmingly at the time there was not all that much discomfort. Uh, I, I mean, and I, I, the book focuses a lot on the on the political rhetoric of the Jacksonian Democratic Party in particular, and among Jacksonian Democrats. Um, this was, you know, the, the celebrating the the, the planter um, as a kind of southern uh, analog to the northern farmer was very common in in the rhetoric of the party. So so right, um, owning uh, owning slaves. I mean, s- slaves were considered another f- within the, the the terms of this myth were were simply another form of property which conferred distinction and independence upon the owner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in when you move into the age of Jackson, uh, and we'll, we'll get to the other two, mm-hmm. the other two individuals uh, in a moment. When you move into the age of Jackson, you refer to a group of predatory elites that the Jacksonian rhetoric would talk about all the time. Uh, give us some examples of who, who they meant by the predatory elites and, and what were they doing? Yeah, so the um, Jacksonian Democrats are are best understood as a kind of as the first sort of populist uh, political movement, uh, mass political movement in the United States. I think, um, and and so. Um, you know, as with all populist movements, they uh, claim to represent the common man, um, in, the sense, in this case, of course, the common white man against, uh, against, as you say, a set of predatory political and economic elites. Now, who are we talking about? Um, 
a little bit of context here. The uh, um, this was a time of considerable economic expansion and growth. Um, the United States was experiencing the early stages of we might say proto-industrialization, but um, but historians have sometimes described this as as a period of market revolution. Uh, so the you know increasingly America's uh, inland and regional economies are getting linked together by canals and railroads. Um, Small farmers are producing goods for distant markets and, and adapting to their price signals and coming to see themselves as, as participating in this wider economic system. And that's bringing dislocation as well. Uh, in uh, Right at the start of the period that I focus on in the book, at 1819, the United States experiences its first real economic contraction and collapse. Uh, and out of that, there's a, and, and a lot of small farmers in that moment um, who'd been who'd bought their property with loan, bank loans, essentially, um, uh, get foreclosed uh, on and, and, and lose their land. And there's this dawning awareness in that moment of just how much power bankers uh, and banking has on, on the American economy. Um, so um, bankers came in for a lot of resentment in the aftermath of, uh, of, of the Panic of 1819, um, and, and they appear as among the villains in Jacksonian political discourse. Um, you know, the, there was no, you have to remember, there was no national currency at the time. Uh, so uh, the paper money that circulated widely was printed up by banks. Um, and um, it was only uh, worth as much as the banks, that particular bank's reputation. Um, employers would often pay their workers in devalued currencies from distant banks or banks that were uh, that, that, whose reputation was suffering. Uh, mm -hmm. These notes were easily counterfeited. So there was a lot of resentment among working Americans about uh, about the money supply and about how um, bankers seemed to be getting rich, even though they didn't. Uh, uh, do the same, do anything that, that, that was recognized from this perspective as, as labor, right? So that's part of the story. Land speculators um, were also uh, uh, common villains in Jacksonian democratic rhetoric. So again, if you think about this myth, Jeffersonian myth, um, the availability of Western land uh, was, was essential, right? Uh, as small farmers moved West to buy plots of land to start their own families, being able to access land, decent land, fertile land at low prices was uh, uh, was, was vital. And rich people who bought up huge tracts of land and uh, waited for them to appreciate uh, and then resold them at a profit um, hmm. and kicked off poor squatters uh, came to be seen as villains or were commonly described in Jacksonian democratic rhetoric as kind of European style aristocrats who you know, uh, amassed these huge holdings and governed them from afar. And who did these people think they, they were? And, and, yeah. and is, you know, is America really the kind of place where we're going to tolerate this kind of uh, uh, this new breed of aristocrats? Um, the early um, factory owners uh, um, also came in for some real criticism. Um, uh, yeah. And I can talk more about that if you want that the, the yeah. The, the, the critique of wage labor that was a common feature of Jacksonian democratic rhetoric as well. Yeah. Well, let, let me let me ask you, move on to the next figure, the rights bearer. Who is that figure? Yeah. And so what is that figure? Ways, yeah. One of the ways um, Americans commonly celebrated their own uniqueness was by simply 
pointing to the the broad range of individual rights uh, that uh, that white Americans and in particular white American men enjoyed at the time, and these rights were enshrined not just in the Bill of Rights but in the many uh, uh, state constitutions that were framed and reframed throughout this period. These rights were often imagined as as sort of immunities against government interference. So there was a strongly kind of anti-governmental aspect to this mythology. Like in America, government leaves you alone, and you enjoy this wide slate of uh, of, uh, of personal liberties, um, you know. So, so, and just to come back to to a feature that unifies all of these myths, right? So, so what we're being told, what Americans were being told over and over again, um, was that America was a, a a country devoted to liberty, and in particular to individual liberty. Um, that uh, uh, that, and, and what you see. Politicians increasingly doing with the with this this these various mythologies is is arguing that look American liberty is under threat, right? There are pressing uh, uh, dangers and and we need to rally uh, together and rise up in defense of our own liberty. So this 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 rhetoric of rights being violated, um, especially at the hands of government and economic elites, and needing to rise up to assert uh, uh, the integrity of one's own. Uh, rights is just a, 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 a ubiquitous feature of the political rhetoric of the time, and it, it's, it shows up in debates over free expression and freedom of religion and the free market uh, and uh, uh, debates over slavery and, and all, all kinds of other debates. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, on the free market issue, did Jacksonian Democrats think that free markets and free trade would protect them from the manipulations or exploitations of the powerful or, or did they work? This makes us more vulnerable. Yeah, uh, this is actually something that I'm really interested in and became more interested in as I uh, got deeper into the research for this book. Uh, this is really the period in American history when free market ideology is, is widely popularized. And I find it absolutely fascinating to sort of study the ways in which it initially emerges. Um, and, and you're absolutely right to suggest that um, many Jacksonian Democrats positioned the market as a way of protecting ordinary people against um, the machinations of, of greedy elites. And the story basically went like this. At the time, um, it was widely assumed that um, markets were, were, were broadly egalitarian. Um, that is, you know, again, remember we're working, we're, we're talking about a society of small producers largely that didn't have massive corporations dominating the landscape. So when you talk about the free market and, and, and also, we're talking about uh, a population of, of farmers, overwhelmingly rural society, who tended to own their own land. So for them, the market presents as an opportunity to uh, 
sell their goods uh, at a profit, uh, make money um, uh, with which they can improve their lives, right? Widen their access to consumer goods, buy more land, get ahead in the world. Um, and it was also, but, but the, the, the sort of the gains that you made in that context were thought to be sort of incremental, right? You had to work hard on your farm to raise crops and gradually accumulate a little more land and sell more of it uh, and sell, sell more on the market. And, and, and you know, so, so there, the market is broadly associated with meritocracy, with a kind of incrementalism, and because of this incrementalism, with a kind of broad economic parity, right? You, you don't imagine some people getting fantastically rich and, uh, uh, overnight. Um, and yet, right, there were people getting fantastically rich. And so what's, what is the story that gets told about that? Well, by and large, it's a story about government, right? It's a story that says, look, the market is this sort of harmonious and broadly egalitarian system. But what you see is the government coming in and picking winners and losers and bestowing, for example, bank charters, because if you wanted to charter a bank at the time, you had to petition the legislature specifically. And of course, the people who got those charters tended to be well-connected uh, elites, right? Uh, and they won certain special privileges, like the privilege of printing up money and loaning out more than you actually had in your vault, right? And, and so presto, they're making all this money. And so there's this, the, the market interestingly functions as, as part of this populist egalitarian rhetoric at the time. Like, look, if only we can prevent government from picking winners and losers, if only we can keep government's hands off the economy and allow this kind of benign and harmonious market system to unfold, we're going to have a broadly egalitarian meritocratic society, again, for whites. Um, and, 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 and it'll be, you know, it, it, and this is sort of in keeping with the Republican ideals of the founders. So, so you can see how the market here gets woven into this story, um, this, this kind of egalitarian story. Um, yeah. What did the Jacksonian Democrats think of the abolitionist movement as it sprang up in, in the 30s and built in the 40s? Um, yeah, they hated it. <laughs> I mean, the uh, uh, both parties, to some extent, see the abolitionists as a threat um, because uh, well, when you it, say both parties, just just so this is the Whig Party, the Whig Party, yeah, and so the we're Democrats, the, no Republican Party right now. There is exactly this is the one little uh, slice of American history, the so-called second party system, which extends from the late 1820s to the mid 1850s, during which you don't have a Republican party. You have the Jacksonian Democrats and the Whigs, their opponents. Um, but yeah, so for, um, I mean, Jackson himself uh, derived most of his, his political popularity and support from the South. Uh, uh, he and, and many other Democratic leaders were slaveholders. Um, the uh, the rise of immediatist abolitionism. So it's really in the 1830s um, that you get this uh, with the publication of Garrison's Liberator in Boston, uh, this uh, incendiary new uh, newspaper calling for the immediate uh, uh, and uncompensated end to slavery, um, that you get the rise of this sort of sort of fresh wave of abolitionist sentiment calling for an immediate end to slavery. And this, this of course, I mean, it's both a, a, an economic threat, but also, I mean, 1831, the very year that uh, that that 
that the Liberator starts getting published was also the year of the Nat Turner uh, rebellion, the, 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 the most serious slave uprising, which sowed panic and fear throughout slaveholding Southern society. So mm-hmm. abolitionism was, was, was perceived as a kind of visceral threat um, by Southerners who, who went to great lengths, for example, to forbid the delivery of any uh, abolitionist uh, newspapers or correspondence in the South, right? Uh, because they worried that these would these 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 ideas would fall into the hands of uh, literate slaves and would become uh, yeah. uh, fuel for um, for uh, what, what they called race war, essentially. Yeah. Right? So, so there's you, this. You 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 note that that you note, however, that the abolitionists actually uh, adopted a lot of the myths of individualism. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that that I note throughout the book. So, so American individualism is a is a many layered and complicated cultural and ideological phenomenon, and that's one of the lessons of the book. So, p- part of what I'm trying to get at when I identify these three different myths with three different conceptions of freedom at their at their heart is to suggest already there's a kind of multiplicity. But then, as you say, what you see. Precisely because these myths were so powerful and widely accepted, anyone trying to gain political traction during the 19th century, and I would argue beyond, has had to position themselves as defenders of American liberty, right? Um, and, And certainly the abolitionists did that. And they did that because they were partly because they believed in these ideals, but partly because they were shrewd political strategists who understood that in order to to make a a, a persuasive appeal to the American electorate, you had to be able to say, look, yes, there's a conspiracy against American liberty. Yes, there are malign elites who are getting rich um, by by uh, on the backs of others um, and destroying the, the the freedoms of ordinary people, but guess what? It's the slaveholders who are those. It's not the bankers and the 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 industrialists and the land speculators uh, so much as the slaveholders, right? Um, these are the ones who 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 are uh, hell bent on extinguishing uh, liberty, and and not just for. I mean, the emphasis lay, of course, first of all. On, on the horrors of slavery and, and its brutality and its destruction of freedom, but also then on the widening assaults on freedom for whites, right? So abolitionists were subject to censorship and violence and mob uh, 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 violence of various kinds. Um, the males and, and, and you know, people would get, would get arrested for coming into Southern states uh, with you know abolitionist literature, so there's real free speech issues. Um, the gag rule in Congress, which prevented uh, 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 petition, abolitionist petitions from even being received and heard on the floor of Congress, was considered a kind of outrage against the right to petition. So there's this sort of this attempt to present to prevent present excuse me slavery as a conspiracy against American liberty writ large, um, and so you see, yeah. So so the slaveholders were very adept. Uh, sorry, the slaveholders. Yeah, they were too. But the abolitionists were very adept at um, harnessing these myths for their own political purposes. The 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 last figure that we'll cover as we wrap up the self made man, which comes a little later. Correct. Um, well. Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing I should emphasize, I'm not arguing that that any of these myths are sort of 
originate in the Jacksonian era, right? You can go back, and, and this is certainly true of the myth of the self-made man. You know, you go back into the colonial period, and you see. I mean, you look at some of Ben Franklin's early writings, right? He's and he's you know right. celebrating this feature of America. Look. You can be whoever you want to be here, right? This is a classless society, a land of expansive opportunity. You can change careers as much as you want. You can, you know, through hard work, rise through the ranks and become uh, a man of distinction, etc. Um, what I am arguing is that these these individualistic stories, which were always part of a of of American political culture in the colonial period and the revolutionary period and, and beyond, become um, ubiquitous and widespread uh, in the political rhetoric of the Jacksonian America of Jacksonian America in particular as this sort of new class of political entrepreneurs who are looking for ways of mobilizing voters in the context of, of this sort of emerging mass democracy of the period weaponize these 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 stories and 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 use them for their own partisan purposes now so the myth of the self-made man right um, is is in my view harnessed more more effectively by the Whig Party, it's sort of their response to the uh, the Jacksonian mm-hmm. stories of of rights and personal independence. Their way of positioning themselves as the true inheritors of uh, American freedom. And for the Whigs, it's it's this idea of self making um, is bound up with a with with a a what you might call a uh, a program of economic uh, of, of planned economic development and growth. So Whigs were for uh, um, banks and, and the wide availability of credit. They were for tariff protections to help grow American manufacturers. They were for federal investments in infrastructure to try to grow uh, a, 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 a domestic economy. And they thought that in promoting prosperity, government was creating conditions under which people could experience um, um, economic mobility and a kind of limitless economic possibility. So, um, so that was, that was a central part of their political appeal. The book is The Roots of American Individualism, Political Myth in the Age of Jackson. Professor Zakaris, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.